I'm curious, why is smell so important and why should people care about smell? Smell is so important because it impacts upon us all the time, whether we recognize it or not. The quickest way to affect somebody's mood, state, or emotions quicker than any other sensory modality is with smell. Hey, I'm Cody Goff from Curiosity.com. Today we're going to learn about the way that smell can affect our moods and our perception and even our relationships. Every week we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. Your nose is always working, even when you're asleep. It sends signals to your brain that can totally affect your mood, your concentration, your sense of time and space, basically everything. And what's weird is that you may not even know you're being affected. So to learn more about this, I spoke with Dr. Alan Hirsch, chief neurologist and psychiatrist at the Smell and Taste Treatment and Research Foundation in Chicago. So, you know, unlike the other senses, vision or hearing, where you consciously recognize something, smell acts as a pure emotional sense. For instance, you'll see a picture of a cow or a tree or a horse. You'll identify it. you decide if you like it or not. And, and then you'll go from there. With smell, it's the exact opposite. You smell a smell, and you immediately, immediately you decide, I like it or I don't like the smell. So it's a pure emotional sense. Even before you identify what the smell is, you've already decided if you like it. So the, the quickest way to affect somebody's mood, state, or emotions quicker than any other sensory modality is with smell. You'll smell a bad smell, and it'll make you feel angry or it'll make you feel sad. Smell a pleasant smell and you'll be happier. So all the time, everywhere we go, smells are impacting upon us in all sorts of different ways, even unconsciously. So let me give you an example of how we know this. We've been studying this over the last 25, 30 years, looking at how smells can impact upon people's behavior. And one of the things we did is we looked at brain waves. And we looked at brain waves of medical students and what we found is in the presence of different odors, you could actually cause changes in brain waves. So, for instance, lavender tends to increase alpha waves in the back of the head, which is associated with the more relaxed state, whereas jasmine increases beta waves in the front of the head on the EEG, associated with the more awake and alert state. So you can actually cause somebody be, to be more awake and alert or more relaxed based on the odor that's present. Okay, there's a lot to unpack. First of all, you mentioned that that you can get an emotional response the fastest with the nose. What about music? If something's too loud, doesn't that cause pain? Well, that's right. But music will cause pain, and uh, and that will cause a response. And you can cause a response with a, a strong irritant odor as well. So, for instance, what happens when you pass out? They take it and give smelling salts under your nose to wake you up. Well, that's an example where smell is inducing, directly affecting the reticular activating system, that part of the brain that makes us awake and alert. And so, if, and what it does is it stimulates the trigeminal nerve or the irritant nerve. That's a nerve that makes you cry when you cut an onion, for instance. And so it can make you more awake. And similarly, not only can odors cause you to be more awake, they can also cause you to be more sleepy. So, for instance, when we studied effects of odors on sleep, we found that different aromas can actually cause you to fall asleep faster. When we look at something called sleep onset REM latency, in the presence, for instance, of lavender, people tend to fall asleep faster. Now, that's not true for everybody. 
For instance, if you dislike lavender, it doesn't have this positive effect. And possibly what happens is odors become associated with emotions and associated with people and strong emotional experiences. So, for instance, let's say you had a, a girlfriend or a, a boyfriend or somebody who wore the smell of lavender and you now dislike that person. Well, when you smell that smell, it induces the same strong negative emotion and so it prevents you from going to sleep. Now, wait a second. So then doesn't that make all of these smells and how they affect your brain a little bit subjective? Well, what happens is there's strong individual variation from person to person. However, what we found is you can actually show changes in brain waves with levels of odor that are so low the medical students were unaware that an odor was present. So it's, it's so they not even they could not even recognize an odor was present. Yet we were able to show changes in brain waves, suggesting that it, at some level odors are working on an unconscious basis. And so so you could you can in theory impact upon people in a subliminal way based on smells. And so you go into a room and there's an odor there, and it may make you more angry or may make you happier and you don't even recognize why that's the case. So lavender has a specific scientific effect, generally, but if I have an ex-girlfriend that used to wear a lot of lavender, then suddenly I have a negative association, but that scientific effect is still going to impact me? Well, that's right. at least it, it conscious, when you're conscious of it, you'll respond in a negative way, but if you're not conscious of it, it'll still induce the same positive impact. So what happens is, we can learn to like things that are negative for us. For instance, let me give you a good example. Hot chili peppers. Hot chili peppers induce a trigeminal response. It's capacin, it's on the tongue, it induces pain, and it causes actually destruction of taste buds. Hey, Cody. Hey, Ashley Hamer, one of our editors, who's going to pop in from time to time with a little fast fact for us. That is right. I wanted to talk about capsaicin, which is the compound that gives chili peppers their heat. That trigeminal response he's talking about involves capsaicin's effect on the trigeminal nerve the one responsible for sensations in your mouth and face, like heat, tingling, and pain. And people will cry in response to it, and they'll turn red, beat red, and they'll, they'll be sweaty. Yet people love them, even though it's inducing pain. So what we've done is we've, over years, through experience, we've learned to like something that is intrinsically negative to an individual. Another good example would be coffee. When you drink coffee, coffee initially is a very bitter and people would naturally avoid it. But what happens is, is over time they learn that they get a positive response from the caffeine or a social response for it, and they begin to use it more and more. So we, another great example is cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke initially has a strong aversive response, yet over time people learn to like it and, and hence use it. So we can overcome an underlying physiological response through learning. Even beer. Even beer. Now, beer is, a great, is another great example because actually for some individuals, beer tastes good. For some individuals, beer tastes horribly bitter. And it has to do with the number of taste receptors they have for bitter. And so those who have very strong bitter taste receptors will avoid beer, where those without it more likely drink it. So there's, there's all sorts of things that go on within our body that physiologically affect us Yet we overcome it because of cognitive reasons. We want it to be social or we've learned over time. I guess another great example, if you go on a roller coaster, what happens if we go on a roller coaster? You get scared. You're scared. Oh, my goodness, I'm really scared. You go on the roller coaster, you scream. The first thing you do when you get off it is you want to go again. Because in the roller coaster, you've survived death in this one episode, and therefore it's giving you that thrill. You get that same thrill, that same adrenaline rush with, for instance, hot chili pepper.
to survive the chili pepper. Exactly. There are other reasons why people use hot chili pepper. For instance, one of the theories is that it causes an increase in salivation. So in places where it's dry in the desert, people learn to use it. Or possibly what happens is, is it may be the equivalent of uh, a coffee. Coffee is something for an adult, and hot chili pepper is something an adult learns to use. Or possibly it's because hot chili peppers induce release of endorphin on the tongue, and endorphins act to inhibit pain, so it's giving a little morphine on the tongue. So that, all of these could be reasons why it's used so, and it's so popular today. And when you're talking about chili peppers, you're talking about something spicy, but most of that you detect after you've put it in your mouth and you're tasting it. So I'm guessing taste and smell are extremely closely related. Well, you're exactly right. As a matter of fact, 90% of the time when we talk about taste... We really mean smell. So, for instance, if you hold your nose and eat chocolate, it tastes just like chalk. It has no taste at all. If you hold your nose and eat a, a carrot and a potato, you can't taste the difference, or even an apple and an onion. When you were a kid and you had to eat spinach, what you do is you hold your nose and eat the spinach because you couldn't taste it because what we say is taste is really smell. So smell that comes from outside our nose up to the top of our nose we call that smell. On the other hand, smells that come into our mouth, go through the back of our throat, up to our nose. We call that retronasal smell. We call that taste. And it's a form of synesthesia, of misperception of one sense as another. So, for instance, if you close your eyes and you lightly push on your eyeball, you see color. When there's no color there, you're misperceiving the pressure as color. Those colors you see when you press on your eye are called phosphenes. And some scientists think they could be real light your body's producing the same way fireflies produce a glow. Generally, though, it's believed that those lights happen because the pressure is making the cells in your eyes misfire. The same thing happens with smell and taste all the time. Smell outside our nose, we call smell. Smell that comes inside our, from our mouth up to the top of our nose, we call that smell taste. And what is the reason for that? Are they wired to the same part of your brain? Well, exactly right. Ultimately, they go, they go to the same part of the brain. Uh, what happens is, is that the smell component goes to our olfactory lobe, which is in the limbic system, but that's very closely related to the taste component. So when we have smell and taste, we tend to integrate the two together, but it's really smell that has a, such a major impact. So you can try and do this yourself. If you hold your nose at home and eat vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream, they'll taste identical. They taste like vanilla. So while there are other components that we perceive as flavor, it's really smell that's impacted upon it. And also, there are all sorts of different emotions that are associated with smell. We began to look at this because we found that after people lost a sense of smell from head trauma or whatever, we found that a large number of them became depressed and anxious. And we thought, gee, if they become anxious when they lose a sense of smell, maybe there's some sort of free-floating valium in there that we're all smelling. And we lose your sense of smell, you can't detect it, and hence you become more nervous. So we studied different odors that could potentially impact upon anxiety. And we found that some odors, for instance, oh, uh, jasmine, for instance, and the trigeminal stimulants like citrus and peppermint tend to induce anxiety in people. And malodors, unpleasant odors, enhance anxiety. So when you're in a, in a bad-smelling place, you become more anxious and you become more aggressive or angry. So, for instance, on days when there's a bad-smelling air pollution, there's an increased number of motor vehicle accidents. So just in drivers are driving more aggressively. In one study that, that was done many years ago, subjects were told by turning a knob to the right, a colleague got an electric shock. In the presence of bad smell, they would turn the knob much further to the right. 
or uh, we studied a, a mulching site here in Illinois, and when there was a bad smell wafting across the street to the school, there was an increase in behavioral problems in the school children. So all of this suggests that bad smells increase aggression. So what you want to do is to reduce aggression in your household, get rid of the bad smells, and put pleasant smells there. You can even do one step further because you can actually use smells functionally in different rooms to have a positive effect. So, for instance, if you want to be in, in, the, oh, in the study and you want to, to study better, well, what we found is that in the presence of a mixed floral smell, 84% of the time there's an increase in speed of learning compared to the no odor condition. So you can actually improve your speed of learning in the presence of a pleasant aroma. Okay, now hold on a second. I want to know how this research is conducted. Oh, sure. Well, you know, each study was done in different ways, and uh, we have all sorts of different, we have thousands of different odors here in the laboratory, and we, we look at them in all sorts of different combinations to see if they'll have a positive effect. And oftentimes, more often than not, we're wrong in, their, in the effects. But what we've done is, for instance, effects of odors and learning, we've studied this in adults. We studied in preschoolers, first graders, second graders, third graders, and high school students looking at effects of odors and learning. And what we found is that odors actually improve speed of learning when you look at something called the trail-making subtest of the Halstead-Rattan battery, which is basically a connect-the-dot test. But the, the tra- what is that test again? It's, it's called the trail-making subtest of the Halstead-Rattan battery. What it is is it's a, it's you, you measure how fast they're able to connect the dots, and they, you do it three times. You see how quickly they learn it. Most people are able to learn it very, very quickly. So we looked at normals there, and we did it in the presence of different aromas. And we found that in the presence of mixed floor aroma, they actually learned it much faster. And we found this to be true not only in children and adults, but we also looked in people who have minor learning disabilities, and it worked with them as well. However, the one caveat is it had no impact if people could not smell. And, and so if you can't smell, it doesn't work, which makes some logical sense, because if you can't smell, the odor won't have any, any effect. But that's one way that odors could potentially impact upon people. But what I would suggest to you is that odors impact upon us all the time. Let me give you another example. We were looking at anxiety, and one of the hard things to study about anxiety is it's hard to make somebody anxious. And we were doing a studies, and one of, the, one of the subjects came up and said, you know, I really could barely come here because I have such strong claustrophobia when I go in, in, in an elevator. And, and he, had, he had impaired sense of smell. And somebody else in a group said, you know what? Same thing happened to me. After I lost my sense of smell, I became claustrophobic. So we began to think, gee, if you lose your sense of smell, you become claustrophobic, maybe there's an odor in the air that's making us perceive the room as being larger than it actually is. So we studied the effects of odors on people's perception of room size. We put people in little coffin-like tubes and closed the lid and measured the EEG and measured heart rate and all. And what we found is in the presence of green apple smell and cucumber, they perceived the room as larger. <laughs> and, and so uh, in the presence of, of barbecued roasting meat, they perceived the room as actually smaller and more claustrophobic. So what you can actually do is you can actually change your perception of room size based on smell. So if you have a small room in your house and you put cucumber there or green apple smell there, people will perceive it's larger. So, for instance, if you have to sell your house, you want people to think the room is bigger than it is, you can put those aromas there and people will, be, will perceive it's a larger room. Or if you have to go on an airplane, let's say, and you can't, can't stand being in small seats, 
take some cucumber smell or a green apple smell, and your perception will be its larger space. And where would you get a cucumber smell or a green apple smell? Oh, you know, you can get that from any, go to any grocery store and, you know, you can get the shampoo. You get green apple shampoo or cucumber shampoo and put a few drops in a handkerchief or a Kleenex and take and sniff that. It, it, but you, you can't just sniff a handkerchief that it's got shampoo. Well, no, it, it, the smell will stay there for a while. Or you can just get a little bottle of the shampoo and carry it around with you. But you know, these you can get these from literally there. You know, you can get the the scents, the, the more expensive scents, or you can just go buy, buy shampoo and it have the same effect. Uh, we know that trigeminal irritants make you more awake. These these stimulants that that make you cry when you cut an onion. Similarly, we we studied the effects of odors on sexual arousal. And what we found is we measured, we originally looked at this because we found that about a quarter of people after they lost their sense of smell developed sexual dysfunction. So the idea came up that there may be a relationship between odors and sexual arousal. And we're not the first ones to describe that. Freud, almost 100 years ago, said that in order to remain a civilized society, we had to repress our olfactory instincts. Otherwise, we'd walk around sexually excited all the time. So what we did is we looked and we, met, we took volunteer medical students and we measured penile blood flow in the presence of all sorts of different floral smells and perfumes. And as a control, we threw in the smell of baked cinnamon bun. And lo and behold, the baked cinnamon buns had a greater effect than all the perfumes put together. So I wasn't sure what to make of that. It could just mean the medical students are always hungry. You don't know in that group. So we, <laughs> so we then studied males in the general population here in Chicago, ages 18 to 64. And we studied all sorts of floral smells and perfumes and a whole bunch more food items. And what we found is the number one odor that enhanced penile blood flow was a combination of lavender and pumpkin pie. Number two was a combination of donuts and black licorice. And number three was a combination of pumpkin pie and donuts. However, there was individual variation. So the older the man, the greater the engorgement with vanilla. Those who were most sexually satisfied had the greatest increase with strawberry. And those with the most frequent sexual intercourse had the greatest increase with lavender, oriental spice, and cola. And to give you an idea what sort of changes those were, perfumes increased penile blood flow by a median of 3% compared to 5% for cheese pizza, 9% for buttered popcorn, and 40% for lavender and pumpkin pie. 40%. That's right. And what was so interesting about this study was that for some of the subjects, they slept through the whole study. We'd be changing the odors and we'd be measuring penile blood flow, and they'd be sleeping the whole thing. They must have sleep after or something, but they're sleeping away. And despite being asleep, they still had the greatest impact with, in response to lavender and pumpkin pie. Is this why so many kids are born in July? <laughs> well, you know, it's, we're not exactly sure why this is. We had a number of hypotheses, but the b- biggest question we, we had was, well, if this arouses men, what arouses women? And the answer is we didn't know, and no one had ever studied. So we looked at we looked at vaginal blood flow in the presence of different aromas to see what odors enhance female uh, sexual arousal. And we had basically two different hypotheses. On the one hand, we felt that it made no logical sense, no evolutionary sense, for one sex to be aroused while the other isn't. Therefore, if food odors act to arouse men, they should act to arouse women as well. And we had a counter-hypothesis, which is that since in our society, women are often involved in preparation of food, which is not a very sexually exciting experience for them, food odors would act to inhibit sexual arousal. So we figured we had both bases covered. So we recruited women from the city of Chicago and the suburbs, and what we found was the number one odor that enhanced female sexual arousal, a combination of good and plenty and cucumber, although good and plenty and banana nut bread also had very positive effects. But we found differences between men and women. In men, 
Every single odor we tested enhanced penile blood flow, suggesting that it gets men are easy to arouse. Whereas with women, <laughs> that, that wasn't the case. Some odors acted to inhibit sexual arousal. Really? Sm- like, what should they avoid? The smell of cherries, the smell of barbecued roasting meat, and the smell of men's cologne all acted to inhibit female sexual arousal. So it could be that cherries acted to inhibit because maybe it reminded people of taking cherry cough medicine as a child. Or uh, men's cologne maybe reminded them of going out with a man which was a negative sexual experience. But I guess... The bottom line is if, a, if the aim of a man is to induce female sexual arousal, they should throw away the cologne and go get some good and plenty. Yeah. <laughs> they need to make a cucumber cologne, I guess. So you're basically saying that certain odors can turn us into superheroes. Well, it can, it can well, enhance they, our learning and it can enhance our well, sexual... One of the things we looked at, well, they, they, they don't all have the same positive effects. We looked at if, see if an odor can enhance man's conversational ability. No effect. But we did look at empathy. And we looked at the idea that empathy could be impacted upon by aromas. And we found that a combination of eucalyptus, menthol, and camphor enhanced empathy in people. So, for instance, if you are going to uh, want to talk to somebody or if you're a psychiatrist or if you're a therapist, if you wear those aromas and sniff those aromas through the day, it'll enhance your empathy and therefore ability to deal with others. Also, one of the things we began to look at was had to do with time perception. And this is sort of an interesting concept because the olfactory lobe is intricately associated with the areas of the brain involved with time. And if you think about it for a second, when you go, oftentimes I, I would find that I'm going out on vacation or whatever, and I'll, or I have to give a conference, and a second or two seconds before the alarm goes off, I'll wake up. Even though it's, it, I've been asleep for hours, so the question is, why is it that somehow there's some sort of unconscious clock that's going on all the time, whether whether we're aware of it or not, that tells us what time it is. So the idea came up that, well, what's controlling that clock? Don't tell me it has to do with smell. Well, we tested that. It's exactly what we did. And we looked at the idea that, at least while you're awake, odors could impact upon your perception of how long time is. And uh, this is an area that's really not been studied at all. And the idea that uh, this uh, unconscious perception of time, whether we're wearing a watch or not, we always have a pretty good idea of what time it is. But the idea that you can even be asleep and it affects, you can still have a perception of time is basically incredible. It's an area that people have ignored. So what we found is that baby powder causes people to perceive time to be shorter. So if you have to wait, let's say, in a doctor's waiting room, and you, or if you have to undergo a, a, a painful surgical procedure like a, a bone marrow biopsy, if you have the smell of baby powder, you'll perceive the time is shorter and will be bothersome to you less. Alternatively, the uh, smell of cappuccino makes people perceive time is longer. So if you want to prolong an experience, if you have the smell of cappuccino there, people will perceive it lasted longer. You're talking about, there's some compound recipes in here, but banana nut bread, you said earlier. Yes. that There's a lot of things in banana nut bread, so and cappuccino. Are you able to isolate the dominant ingredient? Well, you know, you're exactly right, and the answer is we have not. But you probably could if you, if you had an almost unlimited amount of time. Because in, in, some, in so often in the odors that we use, there are many, many different notes. Scientists usually analyze the notes of a scent with something called gas chromatography, a detector that breaks the smell down into its component parts so that researchers can identify them. And it's usually the top three that people respond to, but it changes because there's something called adaptation. And adaptation is after you smelled something for a while, 
you can't smell it anymore. And then the, the other notes come out. So, for instance, if you put on, oh, aftershave in the morning, you put it on, you'll smell it. And then a few minutes later, you can't smell it because your nose is adapted to it. Well, the same thing happens literally with everything we do. When we're eating a food, as we, if it's the same flavor, if we eat continually the same food, what happens by the last by the steak, you could substitute horse meat for it because you can't taste it because your nose is already adapted to it. So does that apply if you put a scent in a school, for example? Wouldn't that happen to the students that day? Well, that's right. So what you want to do with that sort of thing is you want to alternate or fluctuate the level of smell. So at times you apply it intermittently to give pulses of it so they can smell it. So you are 100% right that it's just like when you put on your clothes in the morning, you feel it's nice and cold or it's warm or whatever, and then five minutes later you can't even feel them anymore, and you'll go through your day not even really feeling your clothes, and as you bring it up consciously, and then you'll think about it. Well, the same thing is with smell. You will rapidly adapt because our nose has been based, our sense of smell has been based evolutionarily on survival. You smell an odor of an attacker, of a lion that's about to attack you, and you avoid it. That's all. So what happens, I always thought, you know, when I'm giving lectures to medical students and they'll be yawning, I think, oh my goodness, they're yawning because they're, they're bored. What happens when you yawn, more odorant molecules enter your mouth and enter your nose, and you can tell if it's safe for you to fall asleep, and therefore the lion's not to, about to attack you. So therefore they're yawning during the lecture to make sure that it's it's they're not going to be attacked. Are you saying yawning is is caused by sense of smell? Well, yawning. One of the reasons that yawning. If you think about why did yawning even exist? Why does it evolutionarily exist? It exists in humans. It exists in dogs. It exists in subhuman primates. And in other primates, why does it exist? Well, it, it's it's really interesting. One of the f- few things it does is it brings more air in, so you can detect more odors around you to make sure it's safe. There's something else that happens with yawning, and that is there's a phenomena that is communicable. So if I yawn, you you're more likely Yawns to are yawn. Contagious. They're contagious, or and not only between people, also between people and dogs, and dog and dogs. So there's a there's a there is contagion in yawning. So I mean, but these are just some of the examples where smells can impact upon us, and they really impact upon all of, all of our life in, in virtually every single way. For instance. One of the things we looked at, hand-eye coordination. So we looked at bowlers and looked at effects of odors. We even looked at the Chicago White Sox and looked at their batting in the presence of different odors. And we found that, uh, that a mixed floral smell actually enhanced batting performance. So you can actually affect people's physical activity based on aromas. All right, this mixed floral aroma sounds like a super scent. Where well, do I get it? What what is this mixture of floral well, you know, scents? You know, you can you can get these mixed floral aromas. You can just go to a grocery store and get some shampoo, a floral shampoo. The the exact mixture is probably not as important as the ultimate aroma. But there's different for different people. There are different effects. The other thing is, is because each of us has has different abilities to smell. And it even gets more complex than that because we know, for instance, that not only do women have a better sense of smell than men do, but it depends upon where they are in their menstrual cycle. At time of ovulation, their olfactory ability is the greatest in order to potentially detect any pheromones that might be present. So there's a, there's a strong individual variation. And there are different things that people do to reduce sense of smell. For instance, cigarette smoking reduces sense of smell. And use of illegal drugs can impair it. One of my questions for you was, where is the limit? 
what's the limit to all these superpowers because different scents can enhance your sexual arousal. It can enhance your athletic performance. It can enhance everything you've talked about. Is there anything it can't do? Well, I, absolutely. The problem where we are now is we know so little about smell's impact upon people. We know, we know more much more about the moon than we know about smell. You know, smell has been an ignored sense. I mean, you go to your doctor's office and he may, he or she may test your vision, maybe test your hearing, but do they ever test your sense of smell? So how did you get into this then? Well, you know, it was really two different reasons. One is I, I'm an obsessive sort of guy, and number two is I was too stupid to know better. And, and why I say that is first, <laughs> I, first I did a neurology residency, and then I did a psychiatry residency. And being a very compulsive neurologist, I... I did a full neurologic exam on all my psychiatric patients, and I found they couldn't smell. I said, oh, my goodness, this is a way of understanding the biological underpinning of psychiatric disease. Maybe this is a window to the limbic system or emotions. What I didn't know at the time was the reason they couldn't smell was because of the medications we had them on. And if I had known that, I would have probably gone on to study schizophrenia or, or depression or the like. Well, as, as it, so by the time I figured it out, I was already so well immersed in the field, I just continued. Wow. So what are the worst? You talked about some performance-enhancing odors, essentially. What are the most inhibitive odors that will just shut a person down or totally inhibit their abilities? You know... I, I don't know. I, I know that that we, if you give people unpleasant odors, malodors, they increase aggression. They become much, much more aggressive. What's the most surprising finding to you that you've found over the years? You know, there's, there's so many that, that, are, that are interesting. Uh, one of the things that we looked at is we looked at the effects of people's perception of weight. In other words, how much do you weigh? And what we did is we had a model wear a scarf around, and uh, she would impregnate with different odors. We'd have men estimate her, her weight. And we went to the auto show, we went to different bars. We had to stop going to the bars because the men kept trying to hit on our model. But <laughs> what, we, what, what we found is that actually a, a mixed floral and spicy aroma actually made people perceive that the model was about 18% less heavy was lighter in the presence of the odor. And which odor was that? This is a, this is a spicy, mixed floral spicy aroma co- combination. So what happens is, is that you can actually affect people's perception. Have you ever seen those pictures that looks like a, on one side it looks like a duck and the other side it looks like a, a rabbit or angels and devils or even a Rorschach card? You can look at the pictures and you say, gee, depending upon how they look, you can give a perception of their personality. Well, we did that with smells. And so with the smell, you're able to change people's perception. Probably the most interesting studies that we've been doing lately have been looking at the idea that what you like to smell or what you like to eat can, impact, can indicate your underlying personality. So we looked at 18,631 people, and we gave them all sorts of different personality tests like the MMPI, the MCMI, the Beck, and the Zung. Wow, that was a lot of acronyms. The personality tests he was referring to are the MMPI, or the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MCMI, or the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory, the Beck Depression Inventory, and the Zung Self-Rating Anxiety Scale. Check out the show notes for more info on those. We were able to determine their personality type, and then we looked at their food preferences, and we correlated them together. So based on what food they liked, we were able to indicate 
what their personality was. We went one step further. We looked at the personality of the spouses, and we looked at what foods they liked the most, and we were able to correlate them together. So we looked at all sorts of foods, ice cream, snack foods, breakfast cereals, meats, all sorts of things. But I can tell you the one that I, I don't have them all memorized, but I can tell you with, with uh, for instance, ice cream. Which of these six ice creams do you like the most? And here's your choices. Vanilla, double chocolate chunk, strawberries and cream, banana cream pie, chocolate chip, or butter pecan? At the risk of sounding boring, I'm going to say vanilla out of those options. Well, sure. Well, vanilla, and you know, I would have thought vanilla was a blah, bland, boring personality. We found it was just the opposite. People like vanilla are lively, energetic. They're the life of the party. They're anything but vanilla. I'm the life and, of the party. And, Sweet. And, and they are most romantically compatible with others who like vanilla. Those who like double chocolate chunk tend to be very uh, achievement-oriented, aggressive individuals, and they tend to be most romantically compatible with those who like strawberries and cream. Those who like strawberries and cream tend to be irritable, cranky pessimists, however. Those who like banana cream pie are empathic, understanding, easygoing, well-adjusted, and they tend to be the universal romantic. They're compatible with everybody. Those who like uh, chocolate chip tend to be very social and understanding, and, those, and they're most romantically compatible with those who like butter pecan. And those who like butter pecan tend to be per- perfectionists, they have very strong ideals for themselves and others. All right, so what's the science behind this? Because it, this sounds a little, a little bit like a quiz you would take on BuzzFeed or something. You know, what's your, what's well, your ice cream well, personality? Well, the, the science behind this is we, what we had done is we looked at these 18,631 people. We gave them all detailed psychiatric tests involving over 500 questions. We were able to determine their personality type, and then we correlated their personality with their food preferences. And we were able to look at food preferences and actually statistically find that they existed to a large degree, we also looked at the spouses and saw what they liked. And we were with the idea that if you've been married for over a year, it indicated a stable romantic relationship, and therefore it correlated those together. Now, I have to tell you, there's some caveats to this. We did this in Chicago. So things that are true in Chicago may not be true where other food preferences are, are like. For instance, it may not be true in, in Louisiana where there's different food types or in, in Alaska or uh, of sub, different subsections of the country. It, it's probably true for the Midwest and for pro- other parts of the country where they eat a lot like we do here in Chicago. For example, but, if you did the test with hot dogs with ketchup, that would be a problem in this city. <laughs> I don't think anybody would be compatible with anybody. The Chicago-style hot dog includes yellow mustard, onions, neon green relish, a dill pickle spear, tomato wedges, sport peppers, celery salt, and absolutely, positively zero ketchup. End of discussion. Well, well you know, there's, there's another problem, too, is that if too many people like the food, we couldn't use it. So if every, I mean, when we tried to just do plain chocolate, everybody liked it. So it didn't give us any statistical significance. So it, similarly, if, if everyone disliked it, it didn't tell us anything like rattlesnake. Well, nobody likes it <laughs> or very few people like it. So it didn't help us any. So we had to look at foods that a large number of people either liked or, or subsections liked. There's a confirmation bias that exists in a lot of people. The Barnum effect. I'm not sure if you probably have heard of it before. The Barnum effect is named after the one and only P.T. Barnum, and it refers to the way people are willing to believe that things like psychic readings, fortune cookies, or any overly broad personality description is meant just for them, especially if that description is positive. Download the Curiosity app for Android or iOS to learn more. When you found out 
the results of your study, did you agree? Did you think that the ice cream personality, that you, what was your favorite type of ice cream? Or, well, or do you not want to well, say? Well, I, I, I changed it since I knew the results. I said, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going for the ice cream that's, that's the best one. For, it shows I have a best personality and, and kindest. And so banana cream pie. But actually, I, I probably would have gone with double chocolate trunk. Uh, however, one of the things that we found is that there seems to be many of the different food groups tended to correlate together. One of the things we thought is that spicier foods would indicate uh, maybe a spicy personality. We found <laughs> it was actually the opposite. So one of the hypotheses we had was that maybe if you already have it in your personality, you don't seek it in your food. So people like vanilla ice cream, they're already spicy. They already have a very vivacious personality, so they don't have to seek it in their food. Now, that's a post hoc analysis, and I'm really not sure why the, th the findings we found were. It's just something that was statistically significant. And w we did this not just with ice cream. We looked at, at different vodka flavors, different toothpaste flavors, and there seemed to be a cross-correlation. And let me tell you where the, this has come up useful for. We designed this originally for psychiatrists to use. So instead of using a Rorschach test to determine personality type, they could ask, well, what's your favorite uh, food <laughs> type? And you could get a perspective then. But we've had calls from employment agencies who wanted to use this. We even had a, a call from a trial attorney in California who wanted to use this as part of his voir dire and jury selection to see who would be most sympathetic towards his client. I said, well, you know, don't choose somebody who likes cheese puffs because people who like cheese puffs tend to be very dogmatic and they view things all as black and white and be more likely to send your client to the jail. Cheese puffs, really? That's right. And it's sort of, it, it, so, but each subgroup, there were different ones. So we looked at snack foods and we compared the different types of snack foods and potato chips and tortilla chips and that and the like. So what, what it tells us is that actually you, what we do, literally every single thing we do reflects our own personality, the, the direction we comb our hair, the color tie we wear, the style of shoes, even the model car we drive. The question is, are we smart enough to figure out what it means? That's what we've done with some foods. And then we're going to need a lot more data to figure all this out. Oh, by, by all means. But if you think about it, literally... Why did some people walk with their head down or some with their head up? Why do they look one way as opposed to the other? Our actions reflect who we are underneath. And that's what we've done with, with food. And it may, ice cream makes a lot of sense because when you're choosing the ice cream you want, as a kid, your food preferences occur under the age of five, ages three to five. And similarly, at the same time, your personality is developing. And people don't say to you when you go to the ice cream store, you have to have vanilla or you have to have chocolate. They let you choose. It's one of the first things you're allowed to choose. And so wow, you're right. And so, so it makes a lot of sense that these food preferences could indicate your underlying personality. If you asked me tomorrow or the next day, I might say strawberry because sometimes people will change. Well, well you're, you're exactly right. Although if you look at things, sometimes people will change because they, uh, they've been told by the doctor, don't eat this food or don't eat that food. We asked people not necessarily what they ate, but what they liked to eat. So many people would say, oh, I don't eat it because I'm on a diet, but I really like this food. So if you look at what they like or don't like, people don't change that much. So for instance, when they go to a restaurant, they may want to look at the menu, but more often than not, they'll choose the same food each time. Hmm. There's, there's an inherent miswanism or fear of the unknown or fear of the new that individuals have. We also, in, in, in food, we call it this neophobia or fear of new things. And so people tend to stick with what they already know about. And there are a lot of people, there are people who will travel abroad and go to McDonald's and order the same thing off the menu. Oh, absolutely. And, and even when they travel abroad, they go to a restaurant and then they go 
back to the same restaurant, they order the same thing. So if you look at, if you go to a restaurant, next time you go out to eat in a restaurant, go to that same restaurant you're at, see if you ate that same, if you ended up having the same thing you had before. I hope that your foundation is sending out this information to everybody because I feel like public policy globally should be dictated by what scents are present in certain places. Well, you know, it clearly affects us. You know, when it, it, it affects our behavior all in, in all sorts of different ways. When there's a bad smell present, no matter what, you, it's, you can't prevent from smelling it, and you, you tend to get more negative. And so if you, if you want our, our politicians to, to be more cooperative with each other, put a pleasant aroma there, and they'll be in a happier state. There you go. We finally figured out the solution. <laughs> well, for, for people listening, how can a person test his or her sense of smell? Oh, sure. There's all sorts of things you can actually do at home. One of the things you can do is take an alcohol pad and see if you can smell alcohol beyond your chin. If, it's beyond, if you can smell it beyond your chin, it's probably normal. On the other hand, if you can't smell alcohol before, it, it has to be closer to, to your nose than your chin, then it suggests there's an abnormality. You should talk to a doctor. Other things like take food, ice cream, chocolate, and vanilla, hold your nose and see. Don't even hold your nose. Just close your eyes and see if you can taste the difference between chocolate and vanilla. This becomes particularly important because when you lose your sense of smell, you're much more likely to be involved in gas explosions. So you don't detect the ethylmercaptan that's added to natural gas to give it its gas-like smell. So it's, that's very important. Also, one of the other things is that you're more likely to be involved in food poisoning if you lose your sense of smell. So smell has a strong impact on safety, on happiness, and, and health in general. It's maybe one of our greatest survival instinct senses then. Exactly. You know, it was, it was designed for survival. You knew, you knew it was safe to eat the food because it, you, you didn't get sick from it. You smelled your mother when you, in utero and after birth. All of this is something that's involved for survival. Well, my final question for you is I would like to know what are you curious about, and I would, would like to challenge you, what are you curious about that you can tell me something that I don't know that's not related to smell? Oh, sure. I, 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 here's a good example for you. Um, if you want to see well in the dark, what food should you eat? If you want to see well in the dark, well, the British said that you should eat carrots, but— Well, it, actually, you're exactly right, but it wasn't—it was, it was actually it, during the time of World War II and because they had a radar that could actually detect— other uh, uh, Nazi planes and shoot them down. So they wanted to avoid the Nazis learning about it. So they said, okay, we'll, te- we'll say it's carrots so they can see better at nighttime so it protected their radar. Got but, it. But that's an example of something that we've all been taught as kid. oh, eat carrots to improve our vision. Well, that's an example that actually what we, what we think we know in reality is not true. And so many things we do are really not true. Just thinking about them, of what we do and whether it makes a difference or not. And uh, what I would suggest to you that all sorts, of, all sorts of assumptions we hold now, if we actually explore them, we'll find that they're not the case. And now at this point, you've told me all this really great information. So we're going to do a little curiosity challenge. And I'm going to tell you something that perhaps you didn't know before oh. that I think you might find interesting. Oh. Found this on curiosity.com. It's also on the Curiosity app, available on the Apple App Store and the iTunes Store and Google Play Store and all those stores that are online. Did you know, I don't know if you would know this, roses smell different in space? Whoa. 
Well, that's that. Uh, that that's great. I I didn't realize that. In 1998, the company International Flavors and Fragrances sent them into space, and the hypothesis was that the flowers' oils, because of the lack of gravity, it would keep the flowers' oils in the stem which would result in a different oil combination. So scientists collected these new essential oils that were produced as a result of the rose being in zero gravity, and it's because of those oils, the chemicals uh, were different. Quick clarification, gravity actually keeps the oils in the stem, so microgravity helped them come out to produce those different combinations. Read the full article about this very cool experiment on Curiosity.com. IFF actually bottled and commercialized the new fragrance so you can buy basically a zero-gravity perfume. And there's a couple of those uh, Shiseido Zen and a body spray Unilever Impulse, and they both contain parts of the space rose. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Once we start to go to space, there will be a whole new set of odors for you to analyze. Well, that's right. That's great. Well, zero-gravity jasmine people more zero gravity lavender and so many more possibilities your your work will never stop well you're right you're right there's a, a universe of smells to look at absolutely again this is dr alan hirsch with the smell and taste treatment and research foundation how long have you been doing this in chicago we've been doing this for for about a quarter of a century looking at different smells and we've written about uh Uh, A dozen books looking at different aspects of smell and taste and behavior and health. Well, I I know you said you have hundreds more studies we could talk about, and we would love to do that sometime. They're always interesting and fascinating, and I hope we can have more conversations. And always, please keep us posted on the latest and greatest. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'd be be happy to. Wonderful. Great having you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Alan Hirsch of the Smell and Taste Treatment and Research Foundation. You can learn more about Dr. Hirsch's studies at smellandtaste.org. And remember to check the show notes for links to learn more about all the various subjects we covered today. You can also learn something new every day on curiosity.com. And not everything has to do with smell and taste. For instance, did you know that solar paint can actually change your home into a clean energy source? Well, now you do. The easiest way to learn more about that is to download the Curiosity app for your Android or iOS device. Speaking of additional information, I'd like to thank Ashley Hamer for her fast facts, and I'd like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a quick review and rating on iTunes or wherever else you stream this podcast, and I hope you join me next time. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Cody Goff. Have a wonderful week. Curiosity.